My name's Andrew Skipper. I'm head of the Africa practice at Hogan Lovells, and I have wide-ranging Africa experience from business to art and culture. I'm co-vice chair of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art, on the Council of the Royal African Society, and co-chair of the UK government's Africa Investors Group. This is the fifth series of the A Perspective podcast, in which I'm having conversations with some of Africa's top business minds and investors alongside key cultural and media influencers people who are deeply committed to building the continent and spreading the word and the vision of it. They're certainly pulling no punches about the problems, but they're also spotting and delivering on enormous opportunities. Today, I'm delighted to turn to Zainab Badawi. Zainab has worked extensively in the media for four decades. She's best known for her work at BBC World News TV and on the BBC World Service Radio on programmes such as Hard Talk and Global Questions, which we've all seen in our hotel rooms around Africa. And she recently produced and presented an acclaimed 20-part TV series on the history of Africa, reporting from over 30 countries across the continent. Outside of her career in the media, Zainab holds a number of distinguished positions. She's been chair of the Royal African Society and is director of the Royal Foundation of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Zainab serves on advisory boards such as the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, the Think Tank's Afrobarometer, and the Mandela Institute for Development Studies, is a member of the steering committee of the Africa Europe Foundation, and a trustee of the Royal Opera House. Gosh, welcome, welcome Zainab. Uh, it's lovely to have you on this, uh, for this discussion today. Thank you, Andrew. Terrific to be with you. Thank you. Zainab, you've, you've had a, an amazing journey to being a pillar of frankly, global society, and you, I know you talk about your hyphenated identity. What changes have you seen in terms of approach to an understanding of Africa and Africans from a personal point of view over the last decades? Well, I think that it has got better, but mm. there's still a lot more to do on improving uh, perceptions of Africa the vision we have still does not reflect the reality. I think at best, several decades ago, people who were well disposed towards Africa had a sort of altruistic engagement with the continent through humanitarian um, activities. And that's all right, but it is quite paternalistic and still kind of evokes dealings in the language of those who have to be looked after. So, you know, we saw the terrific yeah. efforts towards aid through initiatives such as Live Aid and so on. And it still did depict, although it came from a very good place, Africans as kind of needy outsiders waiting for um, saviours from, from outside yeah. the West particularly. And then there were those at the other end of the spectrum who weren't as well disposed and just sort of see Africa as... Um, quite backward, underdeveloped Europeans, as it were, and um, not really seeing Africa as well, its institutions or its people as worthy of study or respect. And it was very much the coup war famine kind of coverage mm. of Africa. Mm. That has got a lot better. It's more nuanced. It's more multidimensional. And Africans are speaking on behalf of their fellow Africans increasingly in the global media and obviously the digital revolution has enabled people all over the world to see Africa in different perspectives. But there's still a long way to go, I think. I've watched a lot of your monumental series on African history, um, which was based on the UNESCO History of Africa, I know. You open with the fact that we're all African 
which is which is a fascinating. I mean, the whole series is fascinating. But your series then goes on to demonstrate the extraordinary richness and depth of history, but also its diversity. Given such variety, how important is it, and even relevant, to understand this basic fact that we're all African? And does it have any help? Does it have a modern context and relevance for us? I think it is important to drum home the fact that. Obviously, Africa, people disagree perhaps about which Mm. part of Africa, is it the southern or eastern part of Africa, where humankind originated. But that debate is over. I mean, every now and again, you get something, you know, oh, this has been discovered in China or Indonesia, but modern human beings originated in Africa. Of that, there is no doubt. And until about 12 to 15,000 years ago, there were no white people. So I think that it is relevant to remind people about that fact because it just emphasizes, um, you know, humanity, common humanity, the universality of um, being humans and the idea that when you look at how long our evolution has taken, that the phenomenon of uh, racism is something which is quite recent in human history and is to be, you know, is a matter of great regret, obviously, this distinction between the races, not only Africans and white Europeans, but also people of Asian origin. So I I think that it's just, you know, you do feel at times, Andrew, as though you're kind of heckling a steamroller. (laughs) Look, we were all Africans originally, and we, you know, Mother Africa is the name of the Mm. first programme in my series. It is. And yeah. so I think, it, I think it is relevant because it's also relevant in another way because people started migrating from the continent of Africa to colonize other parts of the world. And so it also has a resonance for migration patterns that we see today. This is nothing new. Humankind has been doing this for many, many centuries. And indeed, if they hadn't ventured from Africa, Europe and Asia and the Australasian, you know, the Caribbean, South America, and all the rest of it, North America, wouldn't have been colonized. So it, it is part of the human tradition, you know, to migrate. So I think yeah. there are lessons for... Yeah, for and today. I think that, sorry, for me for me also, the, and I was talking to Gus Coesley Hayford about this, who I know has done programs about Great Zimbabwe and, and Mali as well, that the, the depth of history, the richness of culture, the strength of the empires is something which, going back to your paternalistic problem, as it were, the problem, surely that that can help. If people understand that more, that can help um, develop a mutual respect for peoples across across the yeah planet, absolutely does that how does yeah. how does that resonate with you? Because it certainly does with me when I just yes. watch what you're talking about. I think ancient Africa has been vastly neglected mm. and overlooked. You know, its history has really been occluded. I think people tend to just focus on the history of Africa um, once the um, Europeans arrived. But one thing I don't do, which I think, for me at least, is important, is I don't really do a comparative history of Africa. I don't say, oh, look, this is what was going on when, you know, the great cathedrals and churches were being built in, you know, during the Renaissance Mm. era or, you know, Notre Dame or medieval churches in the UK and the palaces and so on. This is what was going on in Africa. We've also got stuff, you know, we have our writing systems in Africa, which uh, there were plenty of those. They were pictographic. They weren't, you know, in letter form and there wasn't a huge 
printing revolution as there was in Europe. So I don't like those comparisons. I think that Africa should be studied on its own merit. And just to say, by the way, did you know that this is what was going on in Africa, that it has a history and institutions and its own way of developing, which is intrinsically um, worthy and honourable of study, rather than constantly saying this is as fine as anything you might see in any European capital. Uh, but I, I, I do think that ancient Africa really needs to be studied a lot more. And I think that's what I hope to bring, uh, I hope I brought over in my, my series, the fact that there was a great deal of, you know, advancement and knowledge and civilizations and steel and iron melting and... Yeah, and I agree. It stand, I mean, it stands on its own, but it's, it is not well understood, I think it's fair to say. So I'm delighted that you, you've helped, certainly you've helped me understand it a lot better. I think they just don't know it. I think No, really, no, yeah, it's, it's a matter of knowledge. I mean, know you know. Yes, uh, and, I mean, what is that saying that, you know, ignorant armies, an ignorant army fights in the dark? I think that, uh, that there, is, there is a lot of, um, you know, rubbish talked about Africa through ignorance. Which leads me on a bit more to education, which I know is, is a family business, as it were, for you. Yeah. But I've been talking to a number of people where it's very clear that education underpins economic growth. And without education, with the demographic growths in, in Africa, in particular in the next 20, 30 years, without education, there, there are serious challenges there. And I know one of your passions is, is education of women and girls. So and a lot of the people I speak to, there's clearly a long way to go in that. How, how are you engaged in that at the moment? Are you optimistic for progress on education, particularly yes, for women and girls? Yes. I mean, you're, you're alluding to the fact that my great-grandfather in the Sudan yes. I was born was the pioneer of female education. And hmm. he established schools and now the family run a women's university in the capital. Um, so I, I have witnessed firsthand the transformative effects and impact of an education on on women particularly and yes i am heartened because i think that um political social economic and environmental public goods and services including education to every african citizen has improved over the last decade um with you know more than 60 percent of africans living in about 36 country yeah. um, where governance has improved since 2010, you know, in this last decade. I mean, there are worrying downward trends now, you know, the worsening security situation in some parts of Africa and also obviously COVID now risks reversing some of those gains. But I, I, am, I am encouraged by the fact that education and equality of opportunity is something which is recognised. But I will say this, it's easy to say education. I think we need to say quality education. It's not just yeah. ticking boxes. You see some classes in primary schools where you've got classes of 60 or 70 and there's a lot of absenteeism amongst the teachers. So it's got to be quality education. It's also got to be a definition of education for women particularly that also includes that their education about um, reproductive and health and, and sexual, mm. you know, rights, so they can 
decide when they want to have their children. I don't think we should put any limit on the number of children that a woman may have. We don't do that anywhere else in the world. But, you know, spacing the children you want to have should be yeah. something that women are in control of. So it's a whole gamut, really, of, um, of education. It, it's, you know, financial literacy, because there's a lot of financial exclusion um, for women, obviously digital um, you know, access to digital um, education. So it's a very, very wide definition of education that I would um, advocate. Yes, and it's, uh, I mean, I, I see a lot a lot of interesting developments in this space. It would be nice sometimes if they were pulled together in a more coordinated fashion. I think there's a lot of groups looking at this at the moment. But uh, we've, uh, bringing it up to date, really, I know you've been talking to um, some of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement in America. Just looking at Africa, how do you see this movement resonating and being of relevance in Africa and to Africans in Africa at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, when when George Floyd w was killed, mm. was murdered in May last year, mm. I, I was um, a signatory to a letter which mm. was um, actually the initiative of Africans living in Africa wanting to yeah. demonstrate um, our solidarity with African-Americans. And for me, I would like to see much stronger links between Africans in the diaspora, people of African descent, regardless mm. of where they live, North America, South America, Europe, and having closer ties with people on the continent of Africa. And I think that the Black Lives Matter movement has regenerated. I mean, that debate has always been there, but it has reignited yes. it. And I would hope that people don't have short memories and um, and move on and really try to ensure that these um, conversations and ties and connections really do result in African-Americans, for instance, um, being even better advocates for Africa on the international global stage. You know, we've got Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is yes. the American ambassador to the United Nations. She's very plugged in with the African caucus at the United Nations. That kind of thing, you know, one really, really welcomes Austin, the defense secretary, mm. you know, what kind of security support can, can they give? So I would just like the that Black Lives Matter movement to really lead to a stronger relationship between people of African descent, regardless of where they are in the Caribbean or, or whatever. At the moment, they are quite fractured and yes. fragmented on the whole. And I think that I would really like BLM to, to result in that. And I know that one of its co-founders, who, who is American-Nigerian, is Opel Tometi, yes. is I think, engaged, or she's left BLM now, and is engaged on trying to do something between the diaspora Dias African diaspora community. So, yeah, nice. so there, there, and there is a number, particularly out of Nigeria, actually, there's a number of people trying to do that. And yes. uh, yeah, I'm interesting about Opal as well. So yes. and it's, uh, it's getting that engagement. I think, again, a lot of people are talking about. And so I'm, I mean, that's great to hear your views on that. And um, people have been talking about, I mean, looking at Africa, I mean, I've been doing this job for a while and people have been saying that Africa has been rising for a long, long time now. And most recently, with the pandemic, Africa Union has called for a new paradigm where the continent embraces uh, the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement with free trade across across the continent, which is absolutely critical and actually reminds me of the point you were making about which way the railways go in Africa, which is always out to the sea rather than internally. Yes, yes. Um, 
But um, there's a lot of optimism and a lot of commitment behind this. Are you um, about building Africa for Africans by Africans? Do you do you buy into this optimism at the moment? Absolutely. I mean, I'm on the advisory board with the Mandela Institute for Development mm. Studies, and our overriding principle there that really guides us is Africa has to look to its own traditions yeah. and its own self in order to develop and not just mimic other development models and to harness what is good in Africa. We you know we've seen it sometimes like in Rwanda after the ter- the genocide, you know, the Kachacha mm. justice system. Um, you know, we, we see health remedies which draw on the fantastic tradition of African herbal um, yes. medicine. I mean, in all sorts of ways. And I think for sure, uh, you know, I've never known Africans to be so angry, actually, Andrew, um, since the COVID response and the, the fact that, you know, they just saw the inequity of the vaccine distribution. And I think it really has energized Africans into saying, look, yeah. we are going to look to ourselves in order to, um, you know, to develop. So it's, it's, I think, you know, it's a silver lining, really in the um, COVID pandemic, that this has really, I think, put a bit of muscle. Trade, for sure. I mean, Africa's intra-African trade is dismal compared to other parts of the world. Lamentable, you might say. It's 20%, I think, in Asia. It's 60% in Europe. It's Mm. 70%. So I think there's clearly a lot more to do there to redress the, as you say, the fact that, you know, trade in the... um, in the past was based on the fact that Africa traded with, you know, all the stuff just left to go to Europe and you don't find good infrastructure links or transport links within Africa. And that must be, um, that's very important, which is why I'm a huge supporter of the Africa Free Trade Agreement. It's, it, it'll be a long time in the making, but I, that doesn't mean to, I mean, I, I share your optimism. I think people can easily put it down by saying it's going to take a long time, but uh, Coming from a country where we've just done Brexit, I don't think we should be um, criticising too much, to be perfectly yeah, honest. No, yeah, and I, I think that, you know, you're seeing the infrastructure projects are beginning. I agree. Well, to, I mean, there's always been cross-border trade, hasn't there, you know, between uh, countries in, in Africa, because often the communities mm. who live either side of the border are more or less the same people. So it's, uh, it's something, there is a tradition there with which, um, you know, one can can build on. But I think that domestic, you know, the mobilization of domestic resources within the continent is a principle that is now governing thinking um, in all sorts of ways. I mean, years ago, you know, you'd sit down at a meeting discussing the development of Africa with fellow Africans and, you know, they talk about development aid and so on. Now, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously external aid is still important, but you don't really hear it feature in the way that it used to. Um, it's much more about let's just, mo- you know, no country has been developed by outside outsiders. And I think Africans are becoming increasingly uh, aware of that. And I think that it's just a matter of time that... And, and the other thing that I find heartening is that, to echo what Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former president of yes. Nigeria, said, is that, you know, Africans now are, on the whole, understanding that they have to control their natural resources and to use them. You know, DRC is the world's biggest producer of copper and a a dominant producer in cobalt. And these are very important, you know, elements in electric cars for the future and so on. So I think Africa is realizing that it can be a real force. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I... 
I listened to Ellen as as well talking. She spoke at one of our events last year, and she but she makes the, the same point, which takes me on to climate and natural resources. Yes, that what she's saying is right, but she also adds that you can't, you know, the the West and the developed world, as it were, needs to understand that it has its responsibilities there and can't just tell Africa what to do because it's done everything already. So there's a there's a balance there, I think. And as we're heading to COP26 and then in Glasgow this year, and I know COP27 is going to be in Africa, how, how do you see the, the discussions around the environment going with, with Africa and, and the West accepting its responsibility for past pollution at the same time as Africa understanding that with climate change, things are going to get difficult. How does that, how, do, how does Africa get a fair hearing and a good balance there? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, such a thing as climate justice, whereby obviously, you know, the funds which are supposed to go into the Green Climate Fund and, uh, you know, which have been lacking should go in. But I think that for me, there's a kind of, there two parallel discussions or debates going on about climate and I think one is dominated at the expense of the other. You know, Africa, as you know, is responsible for about 3% of global carbon emissions, which is, you know, minute. And they are endowed with natural resources, oil and gas. And so there is a sense, and this is a view that's often articulated by African leaders such as Festus Mohai, the former president of Botswana, you know, who basically says, look, you in the West became rich through being dirty mm. and you want us to become rich through becoming clean and not using our fossil fuels, well, actually, that's going to be quite difficult because it's it's hard to realise our industrialization ambitions and to give energy to our people and power because obviously 600 million people in Africa don't have access to um, power, electricity. So they, there is a feeling that there is a bit of a double standard, you know, yeah. gas fields and so on. So <laughs> there's that. And I think the debate on climate, it's all about mitigation. It's, you know, don't fly, take the train. One, well, 1% of Africans actually have ever been on an aeroplane. It's, it's a debate about mitigation, whereas for Africa, it's much more about adaptation and resilience. You know, if you've got desertification or, or you know, droughts or whatever, you need to have crops which are resilient to droughts and so on. So adaptation resilience is much more important in that debate about climate for Africans than mitigation is because, um, as I said, you know, they're not the big polluters. So that coupled with the fact that if Mozambique wants to develop its gas, then it should be allowed to and, and not to say let's have disinvestment and no, you know, Western company should really invest in fossil fuels and Aliko Dangote shouldn't build his oil refinery in Nigeria so that um, Nigerians can get access to electricity. I think there has to be a transition period. I'm not saying that um, one should say, yep, use fossil fuels and maintain your addiction to coal in South Africa, in Kenya, and so on. But what I am saying is there has to be a transition period whereby Africa can develop through the use of its fossil fuel and it shouldn't be starved of investment. How long that transition period should be, and that's where the debate becomes a bit more complex and people say, well, you need to have a, a cut-off date. Is it 10 years, 15, 20, 25 there's a, a debate to be had there to say, yes, our ambition is to try to develop our renewable energy, but not 
turning our back on um, on fossil fuel. You know, nuclear is not really an option in Africa, and nuclear still is very important in the in the yeah. fuel mix. I mean, they talk about it quite a lot in certain countries, but it's, they do. Uh, Egypt, it's going, Kenya, yeah. South Africa, yeah. you know, but um, and, and that's got its own problems as well. You know, how do you dispose of it? Yeah. So, but do I you think, think do you think this goes back to the point you started with that people don't really and it's a difficult discussion to have obviously at the moment with extinction rebellion on our streets but um yes. uh, do you, it goes back to the point do people actually understand africa well, you know because it's it's so big it's so important and it's getting more and more important as time goes do you do you how no, do you I think do. people how, how how can one and do you think it's because they don't want to or the wrong people are talking about it or we you know we hear about the wrong things i mean i it's it's difficult isn't it it is it is but as i say the debate is dominated by you know the you know the the demonstrations outside bp and shell and so on and so forth and not mm. recognizing that there are women with their you know coughing and dying from the fumes because they you know they're burning firewood and charcoal and so on in their small homes because they don't have um they don't have access to power or children doing their homework by candlelight or you know crazy yeah. trying to finish their work before it gets dark they're not aware you know 600 million people in africa lacking power and electricity um i don't think they do i don't think they're aware that you know niger in africa a huge producer of uranium you know lights up all these cities and towns in france whereas the vast majority of, it, of its of its people you know languish in the dark um i think there are huge inequalities inequities which are really overlooked in the climate debate and i think it is high time that these are aired and ventilated and hopefully when cop 27 is held in africa that this will be done i mean you you know you're getting advocates now akin addition of the president of the african development bank says look on climate adaptation and resilience is mm. our priority it's not mitigation and ban ki moon now heads up the global center on climate adaptation and resilience to try to bring up that part of the debate up you know you know wherever you are you can't stop extreme weather you can't stop floods in mozambique you're going to have to learn to try to do something about them you can't stop hurricanes in the caribbean you know necessarily you're going to have to try and adapt to to extreme climatic conditions because you don't know how long you know they're going to continue for so i think again as i said it's all really ignorance and africa has not made a good job of perhaps um articulating what goes on on the continent i hope that that will change you know we've got ngozi konjo weller at the head of the wto yeah trade yeah. organization we've got amina mohammed deputy secretary general at the un yeah. you know there are some uh, but it's it's still not really um but it's it, not so, it's not something which you i mean going back to the first you know one of the first questions we talked about of it's it's in everybody's interest to get it right so it, it's in everybody's interest therefore to um to explain and educate i think absolutely i mean you know I mean, it doesn't have to come yeah. from i mean it, it doesn't have to just come from africa because we all have to understand that if we don't do it together with respect um it's not going to work absolutely and i think people kind of you know we've heard that mantra about you know mm. vaccinate africa nobody's safe until everybody's safe mm. 
But I think that the COVID pandemic has really, you know, exacerbated the the differences between the um, developed world and the low and middle income countries. You know, advanced economies put very, very strong flaws under their economies, um, but, you know, not the poorer nations. And um, I think, and it's accelerated the divergence between the advanced economies and the emerging markets, you know, after a, a couple of decades of increasing convergence. And so I think that, um, you know, it's in the developed world's interest to ensure that um, the less developed part of the world, you know, the lower income countries are not left behind because, you know, it's a small world and, um, you know, you see it through migration and um, that, you know, Europe, the West, they're not, you know, they're not an island from the, and, and isolated from the rest of the world. So yeah. Europe, no, it's very close to Europe. Uh, sorry, I, you know, I, the more the more one's connected, the the more one's um, needs to think about other people. To be perfectly honest, otherwise, because it's all going to affect each of us. Um, you did, you recently. Um, I'm just on the generally speaking on the. You recently stepped down from the Royal Africa Society, yes. the Royal Africa Society, with a broad remit to inform and engage with Africa, and um, picks up on what we we're talking about. Part of that is relates to the art and culture which is something obviously i'm passionate about myself mm. um, how important do you think it is to understand art and culture um and more widely to an understanding of africa itself yeah i mean art and culture african art and culture is a very good way of engaging audiences with africa uh, we see a lot of engagement with music African music, be it African music from the continent or be it African music in the diaspora, you know, jazz, reggae, whatever. So there's huge engagement and appreciation of Africa's art in music form. Um, and I, I think that, you know, the debate about um, the restitution of, of looted art or yes. art that's been acquired um, from Africa in, and is on display in Western museums, I think is good. It's it's putting the spotlight on the fact that actually, again, as I said, you know, Africa does produce um, objects of value and admiration. You know, we know the debate about the Benin bronzes and the British Museum, mm. so on and so forth. So I think that it's a, it's a, it's a good conduit to, um, you know, demonstrating that, Africa um, has got, um, you know, traditions of art which are worthy of admiration and uh, respect. So I am a, a huge, you know, advocate of, of this kind of engagement and literature, you know, wonderful yeah. African writers like Chinua Chebe, you know, write in a way which resonates with anybody regardless of where they're from. No, it's... Um it's it's a fascinating the, the restitution argument is one which which is very uh, if if one could get it right and rest and restore what's rightfully belongs in africa in a in a sense of mutual understanding so that that connected people i think that would be the the the, the, the holy grail from my point of view but we'll see where it gets to i mean zainab in you you you're a uh, to to many of my certainly my my female colleagues and my friends you're a, you're 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 quite an icon um what what advice would you give to um 
to a to, to a young person and particularly a young female at the moment setting out in in the context of trying to understand Africa and making their way in the world. So to a young woman, regardless yes. of what, yes. whether she's engaged with Africa or not, yes. I would say, you know, maintain your independence. Don't mm. think that um, a man is going to be your route to, you know, getting married. And so, I mean, I, you know, I, I have four children and I'm very, very happy I have them and so on. Mm. But I think, you know, my mantra would be depend on no one but yourself, really. And create a life of meaning and purpose and not just the pursuit of material goods. I think that, um, that, that would be, and I I think, you know, I, I, I remember what, um, Jan, um, not Jan Eliasson, who was deputy secretary general at the United Nations, Swedish former foreign minister came from a very poor background and of course rose to great heights. But I remember having a conversation with him and asking him what he thought were the most important values in the world, having met lots and lots of people. And, you know, he said to me, I think the most important is our compassion and passion, because he said, with compassion, you identify the right thing to do. And with passion, you make it happen. And I, I think that that's, you know, something that always struck me as as being very wise. And certainly it, it's something that has um, really, you know, inspired me. Um, and it's something I always bear in mind. So I would say, maintain your independence, even if you choose to have a relationship with a person. And if you choose to have children, um, your identity can become subsumed, but always maintain it. And don't lose sight of yourself and your values. Um, and I think, you know, the glass ceiling has been shattered, but it's not been broken. And I think that there's still a lot more that women can achieve. And you know, I'm quite long in the tooth now. And so when I was trying to make my way, you know, there were so many barriers, but I think now, um, me too, and, you know, all the debates we have and, you know, trying to have um, targets to have women, greater involvement of women on boards, in business, in public life in general, means that there is an enabling environment there for women. And although there are still barriers, they should really try to exploit those and seize them with um, both hands. Zainab, thank you so much for that. That's a really, really good advice. And thank you for joining the A Perspective this morning. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>